Thanks for pressing play. Today's guest, Xander Rose, asked me a question that stopped me in my tracks. And it might do the same for you. And the question is, are we being good ancestors? On this episode, we continue to go deep with our ongoing dialogues with smart people about thinking, different thinking. And in this uh, particular conversation, long-term thinking. You'll learn how we as a society fetishize short-term thinking and why long-term thinking even matters, (laughs) especially if we want to be good ancestors. Why building a 10,000-year clock which Xander also calls the slowest computer in the world, deep in a rock in a remote location of Texas matters. How to lead a massive scale innovation and product development effort over a very long period of time. This 10,000 year clock is taking a long time to build. And in order to build it, it requires a team of radically diverse skill sets. On this episode, you'll also learn what a diamond chainsaw robot is. (laughs) I thought it was pretty fascinating. And why Xander says increasing optionality for the future makes a difference. As well, pay special attention to how and why founder of Amazon, Jeff Bezos himself, got involved with the 10,000-year clock project and what he's been like to work with on this. You see, our guest today, Xander Rose, is the executive director of the Long Now Foundation, and their mission is to foster long-time, long-term thinking. And they are probably most known for the building of this massive 10,000-year clock uh, with the support of Jeff Bezos. So if you are anyone who cares about products you're an engineer, a product leader, or frankly, anyone else who cares about creating products or a different future, you're going to love this conversation. And I bet you'll listen to it more than once. Also, as a side note, Xander is a fascinating guy. He's also an industrial designer whose combat robots, yes, have won over six world championship titles. Did you know there were world championship uh, competitions for combat robots? (laughs) And if you uh, know the TV show BattleBots, you know Xander Rose. He's also, as a side note, a world champion paintball player. Get ready for a legendary conversation with a guy who's about to change your long-term thinking. This is Christopher Lockhead, Folly or Different, the business dialogue oddcast for leaders with a different mind. And also off the top, I want to say a big thank you to uh, our friends at Podcast Magazine. They, uh, a little while back, they published their list of 40 podcasters who matter under 40. And recently they published the 40 over 40. And despite my best efforts to get off the list, they put me on it. So thank you for the recognition. And if you're not reading Podcast Magazine, go to podcastmagazine.com and check it out. Now, do you think food waste is gross? Did you know that in the United States of America, 30 to 40% of our food gets thrown in the garbage and it turns into landfill? And there it gets even more disgusting because according to the U.S. EPA, food waste creates the same amount of annual CO2 emissions as 42 coal plants do. My friends at Lomi change all of that. With the push of a button with Lomi, you can transform your disgusting food waste into magic dirt 
magic dirt that is some of the most nutrient-dense compost soil on planet Earth. And here's the thing. If you've ever done any composting, you know it takes months. Loamy does this in a few hours. And I got to tell you, we've been using Lomi in our home for a while now. We use her every single day. And I got to every day. It's amazing. And we're always putting stuff in there going, is she going to be able to eat this? And, um, you know, it, it, she, of course, takes things like um, typical food waste easily. But you put in like corn in there or a cantaloupe. And in a few hours... It's magic dirt. I, I honestly, it's an amazing, amazing thing. Lomi is only the size of about two po uh, two toasters, and she looks super cool in your kitchen. And in my opinion, Lomi is the most important new home product in a decade. Compost in hours, not months. No more disgusting, dripping, oozing food garbage. Instead, magic dirt. Dirt that you can use in your plants, your gardens, or if you want to throw it away, you can. No matter what you do with your Lomi dirt, you'll know you did a good thing. So Google Lomi today, L-O-M-I. That's L-O-M-I. And uh, there you'll be directed to Pila.Earth, where you can check out and purchase your Lomi. Because with Lomi, we can change the world with the push of a button. Now, as Joey Ramone said, hey-ho, let's go. Well, Xander, it sure is a pleasure to meet you. Good to meet you as well. Maybe just let's start at the top. What is the Long Now? The Long Now Foundation and the Long Now idea itself uh, was started by a set of both technologists and artists. And they're kind of part of the earlier generation of Silicon Valley um, and people like Stuart Brand, uh, who started the Whole Earth Catalog, and uh, Danny Hillis, who started a company called Connection Machine or Thinking Machines that built some of the first uh, massively parallel supercomputers, and it, and other people like Kevin Kelly, uh, the first editor at Wired, um, and it was a group of people that were realizing that by the kind of fetishization of speed that was happening, especially around Silicon Valley and technology circles, that um, we were taking a lot of things off the table. Um, so things like climate change, if, if you were only able to, you know, given a few years to solve something like that, you basically won't even start. Um, but if you are willing to think about something, at least in terms of centuries or generations, you could imagine how you might solve, you know, these large uh, challenges that humanity is now facing. And so <clears throat> one of the other founders was uh, Brian Eno, and he had coined this term long now when he first moved from England to the to New York, when he realized when in New York, when people said now, they really meant the five minutes that they were in. Um, and when they said here, they really meant the walls that they were between. So this idea of this longer now and a bigger here was something that he coined at that time. And we took that and, and really stretched that out to really mean uh, both the last 10,000 years, kind of the the amount of time that humanity has, has really been you know, urbanizing and agriculturing and, and technologizing um, and effectively changing the planet more to fit us than the, than the opposite way. And so the last 10,000 years and the next 10,000 years and this idea that we are we are not at the end of a 10,000 year story, but really in the middle of at least a 20,000 year story. And if we think of ourselves that way, how would we act differently? What kind of things would we take on? Thank you for that. So the thinking being 
let me just see if I can synthesize. Roughly 10,000 years ago is when human beings started to uh, change the earth to accommodate us, as opposed to us accommodating the earth, so to speak. And uh, that led to the path of innovation and change and different futures and so forth that has unfolded since then. And uh, you wanted to think about that in the context of the next 10,000 years. Exactly. Um, you know, if we, if we look at the future and we realize that in this kind of, in a much less apocalyptic way that, you know, humanity may well reduce our, the carrying capacity of the earth by some of the choices that we're making now. But I, I very much believe that humanity is going to be around for the next 10,000 years. And the question is, are we making decisions that are going to help those future generations right now? Are we being good ancestors? As Jonas Salk originally asked, um, or are we being bad ancestors? Um, and, and how can we be better ones? So maybe let's go there. Are we being good ancestors, uh, <laughs> Xander? Um, I think we have a varying report card on this. Um, you know, obviously things like uh, climate change uh, and um, you know, even some of the other issues, like are we, are we building a proper planetary defense for something, you know, long interval of really catastrophic events like asteroid impacts or something like that um, and worse you know the answer is we are working on both of those things but not in an even manner and certainly not in a comprehensive manner and so um there's you know i think there's definitely examples where you know beautiful amazing infrastructure projects um, like the Meslant barrier in, in Holland, um, which was literally designed to stop a, a once in 10,000 year North Atlantic hurricane from hitting uh, Holland and destroying the country. Um, and, you know, at great expense actually built this structure, you know, the largest moving structure, man-made moving structure on the planet. And it's already been used to stop minor flooding uh, many, many times. And so, you know, there's there are examples of, of really great work that has been done. Um, and there's really, you know, bad examples of people really not taking future generations into account. So what was that? There was that movie that came out sort of maybe a year or so ago. I'm forgetting the name of it now. I think it was a Netflix film that was, I, I guess, a commentary on how we've dealt with the pandemic where this these aliens were attacking and then there were the protests, the aliens aren't attacking. And it's a it's a scam. Don't look up one. Don't look up. Thank you. Yeah, I think it was Asteroid Impact. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, yeah, don't believe the scientists that an asteroid's about to destroy the Earth. Um, so, yeah. And so, uh, you know, you mentioned that example. And I was also reminded, I don't know if you remember Reagan saying this. Apparently, Reagan was fascinated by aliens. And he, at one point, supposedly made a comment that said, he said, um, uh, during the Cold War, of course, he said that if we are being attacked by aliens, all this sort of bullshit amongst humans would stop and we would align and we get real focused on an existential threat to humanity. And, uh, you know, not to be Mr. Doom and Gloom or anything, but uh, our behavior around climate change and certainly our behavior around the virus, uh, you could argue the, the war uh, now in, in Ukraine, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, there are more refugees in the world than ever before. You know, there's a lot of things that you could point to that say, uh, when humanity is faced with a crisis uh, and even an existential crisis, um, we revert to <laughs> Neanderthal stupidities. I think, I, I mean, I, I certainly was not impressed by the, as the 
at least on average with the global response to something like the pandemic, I had really hoped that something like that would have actually caused a lot of coming together. I think there was a few confluences of, of politics that, um, that were really poorly timed for this pandemic to, to do that, some of that, um, that bringing together. And obviously the tensions between China and the U S and its origins in China and, um, had a lot to do with, you know, initial distrust and, and how that played out. Plus the politics of the United States, which are being, you know, heavily anti-science at the time, um, really made for a bad way for the lead of the global response, um, and how that played out. So, um, I would have hoped that would have brought people together. I think, you know, there's, you know, there's, there's negative things that can bring people together and positive ones. I mean, I think, you know, for instance, if we, you know, if we received a signal from an extraterrestrial intelligence, um, that could be a uniting thing. Um, I could also see, you know, areas where that could divide people, especially in the religious areas. Um, and so it's an interesting question of how humanity is going to respond to some of these things. I think, you know, obviously, you know, there's been evidence or, or past issues like World War II that really brought a huge amount of the world together. And, and I would, I would argue that even the, the Ukrainian conflict has brought Europe together in a way that, um, that never would have happened, um, had, had they really not seen that kind of almost existential threat to themselves um so you know there's there's positives and negatives that are going on i I certainly hope that there's going to be more positives in the future and it's it's interesting you mentioned sort of aliens and so forth um we've had uh professor avi lobon multiple times Uh, do you by chance xander know who he is from harvard so he was harvard's top astronomer for uh quite a long period of time and he still teaches there and so forth and there was a uh, something that came into our solar system. I believe it was 2017 timing. The, the big oblong asteroid thing. Yeah. And or they named it Oumuamua. Yeah. That yeah. thing. And what he shared with me, he wrote a book about it and he declared it alien. And his premise was that while he can't prove it's alien, he can prove it's nothing that's ever happened before. That is to say, an object from outside our solar system comes in, behaves in a way we've never seen a comet or an asteroid behave in like a very big way, including pulling away from the sun when apparently we would have expected it to uh, be pulled into the sun from gravity, come over, check us out, and then get out of Dodge. And and so, um, to the best of my knowledge, Xander, he was the first person sort of anywhere near his level of authority and credential and so forth to say, probably alien and until we can prove it's not and we should keep trying to prove it's not but right now kind of looks alien and uh and i think you know dr Loeb suffered a lot of uh um unkindness you could say for taking his stance and uh i look i don't know whether he's right or he's wrong but um it's a fascinating topic and he's a fascinating man and his reasonings to me sounded incredible and and certainly worthy of debate and yet he did cause that, but he also caused a lot of the sort of, you know, stupidity and, and anger and, and so forth to pop up. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's there certainly wasn't, you know, kind of uncontrovertible proof that one way or the other on that one. Um, but it was, you know, as far as we know, it was one of the one of the first detected things like that by humanity. And there was a just recently declassified another uh, comet that was um that was classified in this way, but it took a while because of some defense classification. Um, so we're, we're now up to two. And I think l- largely, you know, it's, it's not that these things have never happened. I think it's because 
you know, we as humanity are finally building enough detection and uh, monitoring capability to actually know that it happened. I mean, even even that very large object um, took a lot. You know, the, it was we never got a really good picture of it, and it no. like it was right here in our solar system. Um, and so, the ability for humanity to detect these things, especially when they're fleeting, like just in that happened over a few days or weeks um, is still very rudimentary. Yeah. He was lamenting with me about how much he wanted like a real photograph of this thing. <laughs> so maybe if we could go back to this sort of uh, now, now, as opposed to long now, if I could call it that in the original sort of aha that Brian had, um, it seems like today more than ever uh, we live in the urgent now and, um, you know, recently we had Professor Roger, uh, Roger Martin on, who's considered to be, quote unquote, the world's number one management thinker. And he talks about the distinction between uh, reflexive thinking and reflective thinking. And at least it's I don't want to speak for him, but it's my analysis, my perception that um, there's way more reflexive and uh, very little today reflective Many of us, I've been very concerned about escalating violence in the United States and sort of the demonization of either party by either party and so forth and so on. Now more Americans hate other Americans than at ever at any point in history, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so we just seem to me, and if this is an unfair assessment, by all means, educate you. I'm not committed to this position in any way. But my personal experience of the now now is one of an addiction to the now now and and not much consideration for the long now. Yeah, I mean, I think it's um, in, and and the long now foundation was very much uh, started because of this. Um, some of these new influences, especially communications technology, the amount of information that we have access to screens that we have access to in our pockets at this point um and that we have more chance for distraction than we have ever had before um there's a lot of good things that happen with those information streams uh, as well and i would say you know if you look back over over history even things like you know violence and hatred and all that stuff it's actually we're in the best position we have ever been in in the last 10,000 years you know your chances of of being of being in a violent altercation uh, is lowest than it has ever been in the history um, and so it's while it's easy to kind of focus on some of these things because now we can see the news from around the planet all the time um, the you know the the big pendulum swing of history is still moving towards better lives you know better life uh standards and less violence i mean i i would defy you to just live a hundred years ago in the exact same location that you live now you would you would not think that it that that the world has not gotten better um and so you know just just from dentistry and antibiotics alone right so the um the the idea that um, that things are getting worse—it's it's easy to I think get caught up in that, and I do think that the polarization certainly in the United States right now is not in a good space. But you know, you just go back to the fifties and McCarthyism, or or you know the you know, the incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II. I mean, it's there's there's been much darker moments than the moment we are in right now, and so. I think that we since since we've had some better moments between them, we we then think that that this is the worst and that there's a good old days. But I, I don't think that that's actually true. I think, you know, the, the pendulum swings a little bit back and forth, but I think it's it's swinging 
ultimately towards uh, generally better qualities of life and um, and more justice. Um, but it's hard to see when we're when we're in the middle of possibly one of the swings backward. Yes, that was well put. Thank you. And, you know, just maybe to put a fine point on your point, if virtually anybody was asked the question, hey, you could pick any other time to be alive other than now, when would you like to be alive? The answer we would give is now. While it would be interesting to visit, but to your point, the lack of dentistry was a giant bummer. (laughs) And there was no DoorDash. Well, yeah, and then not to mention, if you happen to be a not white person or a woman, go back fifty years, even or you know, I mean, it's already there's already is, you know enough bad issues in our present, but boy, you go back just a few decades, and you know, you really wouldn't want to live in those times. Well, and even recent history, I still this still boggles my mind, Xander. My mom is um, is seventy five. And um, when she got her first summer job at 16 years old as a student, she was working in a uh, a rubber factory in Canada on an assembly line. And next to her was a 16-year-old boy. And I forget the exact numbers, but I'll be directionally right. The boy was making 50 cents an hour and she was making 25 cents an hour because by law, men made more money than women. And and I mean, that's not a lifetime ago. That I, That's a person I talk to all the time <laughs> who's very alive. Yeah, no, I mean, women only got the chance to the ability to vote in the United States like a little bit more than 100 years ago. Um, and and it came after black men. And so it was there's you know, there's the injustice is very short in our past. So, yeah, again, I think that, um, you know, the the while it's easy to get caught up in thinking that things are are getting worse, I think fundamentally they are getting better it doesn't mean we shouldn't actually pay attention to the things that are that are not good and not just um and are decreasing the quality of life um but i think that um that to think that it's going the overall wrong direction through history is is incorrect yes and i mean just look at the the tale of the two pandemics uh on the inspiring side You know, what did we see? Uh, Of course, we saw radical innovation um, uh, in biotech such that we got a vaccine so rapidly. And then the thing that people don't focus on, you know, particularly because there's been, quote unquote, you know, supply chain issues of late that have been problematic. Um, But the other part of it they don't understand is that literally tens of thousands of companies, never mind people, pulled together, not just to create the vaccine, but to be able to deliver the vaccine, medical professionals, truck drivers, logistics experts, and of course, a radical amount of technology. And then I look at what happened in the business world, the kind of world that I'm most familiar with. I mean, who would have ever said that Goldman Sachs could go uh, work from home overnight? Or, or, you know, mega companies with you know, hundreds of thousands of employees and stuff and, and then continue to thrive. And that entrepreneurs like Eric Yuan, the founder of Zoom, would give Zoom away to schools and like all this amazing shit happens. And so I try to go there for sure. It makes me very excited about the future and, and positive about humanity. But at the same time, sort of the the black veil can feel overwhelming. And so... Maybe help me with if a big part of what you're up to is helping people think differently, think more long term, be good ancestors in a world that does feel or certainly can feel at times has an escalating addiction to the urgent. 
How do you stay focused on the mission in the darker moments? Well, I mean, I think Stuart Brand, one of our founders, has a great quote of, you know, this present moment used to be the unimaginable future. And, and I think, you know, the, the points you were bringing up about the pandemic are very much that, right? Like we couldn't have imagined a world where mRNA vaccines were introduced into the, into the entire planet within three years um, or less. And um, those, you know, those techniques weren't going to get injected into humans for decades on their normal paths. And, um, and, and you're right about some of the logistics and supply chain issues that were solved for that is, is actually absolutely stunning and where the world did come together. Um, and only would have been all of that only would have been possible for, you know, because the virus was sequenced and, and imaged within a month of it being discovered in China and shared with the world in a really amazing way. So, you know, there's, um, there are those those lights. And I would say that, you know, while, you know, it's easy to, um, again, to look at some of the, the people that are fetishizing the, 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 the now over the long now, I think we also see the successes of people that don't, right? Like, and you have a Warren Buffett or a Jeff Bezos who, who, who purposefully talks about, you know, infrastructure level investments, you know, not competing with, with companies in the, in the present, but thinking, you know, seven to 10 years in advance. And while sometimes they're dismissed when they say those things, they're, and they're often, I think, idolized for their wealth. But it's interesting how, you know, the, the people that are the most successful in these spaces are, are always the ones that are thinking much longer term. And, um, those people that have and institutions that have the ability to at least get out of the now and be and have the the ability to think longer term generally the most successful ones yes and as a side note uh, uh, bezos gets criticized as a as, as i know you know uh, on a number of fronts on many fronts and you can argue w- whether he deserves it or he doesn't or what have you the thing that did get lost in the pandemic is Amazon went from being a service that most Americans enjoyed much, you know, deeply to an essential service. And I know because uh, I know some folks who know him. Um, John Rossman's been on uh, Follow Your Different multiple times. And one of the things John shared was that this, the second the pandemic happened, Jeff got everybody together and said, OK, look, nothing else matters make this work. Let's make sure we have what the American people want, when they want it, where they want it, when they need it, et cetera, et cetera. I don't care about our number. You know, just all hands on deck, support people in this time frame. And you can argue this and argue that, but the reality is a company like Amazon, if you said, okay, take Amazon out of the pandemic, how is it? It's a lot worse. And I think entrepreneurs like that. I think Eric Yuan's one. I think there's many others. These folks should be given the fucking presidential uh, medal of honor for their contribution at this time. Yeah, I mean, I think the um, again, we you know, we can it's it's always easy to look at the bad parts of the pandemic. But there is, you know, there's the the fact that we had the Internet, we could use Zoom to do work. Um, the stock market did not crash um, on any huge level. The ability to get things delivered to your home, both food um, and other essential items was is, you know, radically different than the last pandemics that have moved through humanity where people were truly isolated and didn't even get information back and forth, uh, much less food delivery from DoorDash and um, all their all the things they need from 
the supermarket and be able to work and connect with people and their families around the world. I think we were were in the very best position you could be for a pandemic. And and I think partly that that may have been to blame for, you know, some of the the poorer responses to the pandemic from governments because there was this easing of of some of the of the problems. I think um that's an interesting question if if that easing allowed for governments to, you know, deny certain parts of the science and and you know, people were still getting um, you know, having reasonable lives even through the pandemic to the for a large extent. Yes. It's so interesting because of course we focus on the negative so much, but um during the pandemic we had Gary Kasparov on, uh pre the war. And it was fascinating to me, Xander, to sort of uh hear his perspective because one of the things that he said was this virus got created in communist China and solved in free market capitalist America. And if you look at how we as a capitalist country with uh, a lot of freedoms that don't exist elsewhere executed, um, you know, there was a lot of amazing things that happened here. And Gary's point was you didn't see that happening in communist countries. Well, I mean, actually, my memory anyway is that both china and russia had a vaccine circulating before the united states did um it, both of those i think were slightly less effective than the ones later developed in the united states um but both russia and china did develop vaccines that um that helped the the pandemic certainly in their countries um so it's hard to i'm not sure if i agree with that statement totally it, look i can't uh, speak for him um, i mean certainly the lockdowns are still occurring in China and, and, you know, the cost of that is forget the economy. I mean, the mental cost of it is extraordinary. And, um, I know, uh, for a very long time, I don't know what the status is now, but for a very long time, uh, people in Russia weren't taking the vaccine because they were skeptical of it. And I don't know, you know, what's the cause of that. And I don't know whether the vaccine was good or not, but anyway, that was his point. Regardless, one of the things that you're doing is um, one of the most uh, interesting, fascinating, um, some might say stupid, (laughs) um, uh, certainly curious product development uh, initiatives on planet Earth today, which is this 10,000 year clock. And so why the clock? And then maybe take, take me inside the kind of the project of, of building this clock. Really long now, you know, I mentioned to get started around this conversation of long-term thinking, but that was, um, that was instantiated because Danny Hillis wrote this, uh, this essay and he was a computer scientist who had been building the fastest computers in the world. So he'd been working with the people that really wanted the fastest uh, things in the world, literally. Um, and the fastest answers to some of the most difficult simulation problems and things like that. But he, he, it was because of that that he kind of thought, well, what if, you know, what if a way to get people to think about the longer term issues and challenges that we have would be instead of building the fastest computer to build the slowest computer? And, um, and the, his idea was effectively to build this, uh, millennial clock that would tick once a year and bong once a century and the cuckoo would come out once a millennium. And, and he called it the millennium clock in this essay that was later published, um, in 1995, uh, wired scenarios issue. Um, and that was the galvanizing thing that got Stuart Brand involved and others in this conversation. 
um, as a, you know, the, if, if a monument scale multi-millennial clock were built, would that help focus people's, um, discussions, um, give them an excuse to have a different type of conversation that they would normally not be able to have. Um, even if, you know, if these crazy people out in California are building this, this wild thing that, you know, you, you could argue is either theater or art or engineering, um, or orology or however you want to look at it. But the, um, what it does do is it challenges you, right? So that even even somebody who who sits there and, and looks at the designs or the engineering and tells me why it's not going to work over the next several thousand years, they basically have engaged in long term thinking right then. Right, so um, it works in the present, even even if people are challenging the idea um, as much as if people are are embracing the idea. And then I hope it works in the future, and that you know future generations will realize that we you know actually cared about them you know there's there's many monuments that have lasted on this kind of time scale stonehenge pyramids cave paintings um, things like that but very as, as near as i know there's none of them that go that when you look at them you realize that those generations were caring about you um, as a future generation and that's what i'm hoping that the that the clock project does and and so you know we built several prototypes there's one at the science museum in london that's about eight feet tall um there's uh, some of the prototypes uh, at our space in san francisco and um, over the last uh, decade we've been building the monument scale version that's in west texas um and it's built underground and that's that's still uh, not complete um but um we've been working hard and and got a lot of install of the installs done before pandemic and pandemic has slowed us down a bit but we've been able to work um outside of the underground environment um getting a lot of stuff done so we're we're hoping that we can have this done in the next few years and i understand if if i've done my homework correctly that uh you're not like a software development team trying to kick out the next rev or to beat a competitor or something like that I think I've heard you say or, or, or uh, read your writing where you say there's not a necessarily a timeline. We want to do this right. And so there's not some date in 2025 or I don't know when that you're driving towards. No, we're trying to make this thing uh, the best um, you know, engineering and experiential solution to this question of how do you get people to think long term um, with an experience and an object. And doesn't even, you know, people don't even have to visit this thing. As long as they know it exists, they can use it as an example of of kind of extreme long term thinking. And this idea of the the originally it was called the Millennium Clock and then or the clock of the long now, we decided that actually giving it a design life of 10,000 years, um, going back to that original uh, part of our conversation, was you know, rather than trying to make something that will run for eternity, that we, we needed to actually have a, um, a design life consideration for the number of cycles that we were going to test things and things like that. So it's, uh, it became the 10,000-year clock uh, as we worked on it in that sense. Fascinating. And maybe if you could um, just give me a sense for the scale of this thing the size of it how deep it is how wide it is how many people are working on it you know just sort of size the the thing itself and the project well it's an underground experience that's several hundred feet 
deep or tall, depending on how you want to look at it. Um, and there's, um, the idea is that you have to, you know, hike up to it and go underground and, and walk through the workings of the clock and emerge at the top of the mountain and, and hike back down, hopefully reflecting on your experience that you've had. Um, the, you know, the number of people that have worked on it over the, over time is, is quite a few. And, and a lot of people in some sense have, you know, volunteered their time and kind of done this as their, um, their retirement project right before retirement. A lot of people have worked on it, um, for, um, all kinds of reasons, uh, because it's kind of captured their imagination and the challenge of engineering something like this. Um, but, you know, the, it's a pretty small design team of a few engineers, um, an amazing group that, um, that I've had a privilege of working with over, over the course of this project, um, and fabricators that are mostly here on the West Coast, ranging between LA, uh, San Francisco Bay Area, and, um, and Seattle. And we have done a lot of, you know, kind of, I think in a way, kind of cutting edge, um, material science research and, and, and designs that, um, that reduce, uh, wear and allow something to run, for instance, for 10,000 years, or at least, at least we've tested to the number of cycles that, that need to last for 10,000 years with, for instance, no lubrication at all. Um, and so there's a lot of amazing things that we've, I, I think, developed for the clock that may be useful in other realms, um, as well, but it's been, uh, it's been a, it's been a really interesting design challenge and project to work on with a really great group of people. Thank you for that. Now, as I try to imagine being in your shoes or the shoes of your colleagues working on this, and I think about the domains and disciplines that must be called upon to make this kind of a project work, architecture and design, technologists, uh, obviously construction, uh, I'm assuming some kind of geological expertise, uh, experienced designers, um, and many other domains I'm probably missing. But it's, you know, if there was a Venn diagram of all of the sort of schools of experience and thinking that need to come together to pull this thing off, it seems like, you know, <laughs> that Venn diagram would have a shit ton of bubbles in it. And so I guess tell me what it's like, Xander, to work on a uh, product team, an engineering team, a team of people who are building a product to live for 10,000 years that requires so much from so many uh, disciplines to come together. Yeah. I mean, you know, the largely this is an astronomical clock because the normal kind of clock dials that you might imagine um, don't really matter over the kind of time spans that we're talking about. And I mean, just as an example, you know, you know, we had to, we had to work with JPL to do ephemera tables to figure out where certain stars and planets and, and things like that are going, how are that those will affect the earth's you know, 26,000 year wobbling cycle, which would affect our solar synchronization, which would affect. And so there's just like, you know, these things that you normally would never in, involve in clock design or pretty much any design really. Um, and, um, so those, those are always the really interesting challenges to me. And a lot of the things like the, the material science was worked out pretty early and some of the basic engineering issues of how are we going to get things to, you know, what kind of bearings we're going to use, which we use these uh, ceramic bearings uh, throughout the clock um, were solved pretty early, but the, the experience design part and the aesthetic design part is really the place that we probably have spent more more time than any other thing. While we've had many engineering solutions to certain problems, we've pushed those beyond that in order to get a highly aesthetic solution that looks like something people want to engage in. And, and 
you know, also the question of what is the aesthetic and, and an engaging aesthetic and experience for somebody a thousand years from now is a really interesting question. Uh, and how do you differentiate the parts of the clock that you're supposed to touch um, and engage with versus the parts that um, you're not supposed to? What is that aesthetic and how does that work over time? And so, you know, obviously we had to look into the past kind of to see some of the types of shapes and dynamics and experiences that have worked for a long period of time. Um, and see if we could borrow some of those and then build our own aesthetic around that and our own experience design around that. But that is, that's where we spent time, you know, way more time than just the engineering solutions. And, um, it's really this kind of question of, of the psychology of future generations and how you can make it an engaging object for them. Wow. That's fucking great. Uh, the other thing that's so interesting to me to hear you say that this whole movement over the last, I don't know, you would know way better than I would, but maybe 20, 30 years around experience design and uh, in the business world, certainly uh, um, Joe Pine um, uh, and uh, I forget his first name, but Gilmore's his last name, his partner who wrote The Experience Economy in the late 90s. I was involved with Macromedia back then, and they launched this whole initiative around rich internet experiences and all this stuff. And of course, Apple, and you know, there's been this continuation, a set of ahas happened, you know, several decades ago around the experience matters. And the interesting thing from a software and a product perspective is, you know, when I started my career in technology, the cool engineers were the ones who were working on the database, the data architecture, the, the, you know, the core programming itself, the workflows, all these sort of the mechanics of how real software works. And then the last thing we did was a bunch of morons over there in the corner uh, handled the, the um, um, what, 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 I'm blanking on what we called it. We called user it a interface. user interface. Thank you. <laughs> because, you know, yeah. it's a user and who gives a shit and we don't think much about it. And in the last 25 or so years, at least from my synthesis in the technology world, the whole thing is inverted to the point where we're now in a place where do all those things in the technical layers matter? Of course they do. And security and scalability has been massively exponentially improved. And if nobody uses it, no one gives a shit. And so making an, ex you know, what did Steve Jobs say about the iPhone? He wanted to make the screen look like he wanted to lick it. Right. Yeah, I know. And, and now things are, you know, definitely designed from the experience and first um at least the successful things certainly are uh, designed from the user interface it, and my favorite quote about that term user is there's only one other industry in the world that uses it <laughs> it's drug dealing so the um this idea of like that people were called users rather than um than customers even at the beginning of these cycles or you know the people that we were trying to make happy um and that you know, the term user has continued to stick but um I think the uh, the future of a design centric and experience centric world is is probably it's going to be here for be here to stay, um, and then the technological parts are going to be the parts that support that. And, and in a way, that's that's really what this clock is is, um, is how you know how could it, how can an experience that you have of of going to a remote part of the desert, hike doing a hike, going through this this wild and weird machine with your friends that you brought with you and then hike back down and get back in your car and drive two hours back to a hotel or an airport. And what's the conversation that you're going to have? And that's really the, the, the place that we started in trying to design this. And, um, and the, you know, the other, 
the other way that we looked at designing this was, you know, if we if we had dug into this mountain and found the clock already there, what do we wish we had found? Um, and so that's a kind of a design, you know, a, a way of designing things that um, that I think is is rare these days, and and was certainly you know my background as an industrial designer, that's what really got me going on this project was was kind of solving problems in ways that people hadn't before. Fascinating. Now, a lot of projects, I think, like the one you're on, please, please tell me how you think about what I'm about to say. One of the big powers of them is in the process of doing what you're doing, because there's so much radical innovation, because it's never been done before. There's a set of insights, there's a set of data, there's a set of ahas, there's a set of creativity that come out of that, that have much broader applicability outside this initiative. You know, an example I think many of us can relate to is when the United States decided to get serious about going to the moon, that initiative, the breakthroughs filtered through, you know, so many other things. And so, Xander, I'm curious, are there things that you're seeing that you think have broad applicability outside or are you just you're not worried about that right now? You're trying to get this clock (laughs) built. Yeah, I mean, I think we have 13 mechanical patents and a few design patents within the clock project just in the time uh, that we've spent working on it just give you an idea of some of the innovations that are in it um you know a lot of them are esoteric clock based things that that may or may not be useful um in a technological future but um novel nonetheless and you know there's been certainly some of the techniques that we you know we had to we wanted to put in or cut into the existing rock 400 feet of staircase and we worked with this amazing group up in seattle called seattle solstice who builds these really cool rock cutting machines and adapted a saw that's usually used for cutting marble in quarries and made it into a thirty-six thousand pound robot that could um, had an over 30 foot reach and so it was basically this diamond chainsaw robot that we ran for two years straight and cut 400 stairs where each stair was tapering so every stair was unique Um, and it's kind of these are kind of new technologies for effectively doing underground work like we did that i could imagine being used in all kinds of other applications that that don't want to do blasting underground um, especially like if you're doing hard rock work under a city for instance or something like that so a, a ton there I believe I can say with a, a great authority, Xander, this is the first time in my life somebody used diamond chainsaw robot in a sentence. Uh- <laughs> well, it was also yeah, I, one of my side projects has been building uh, robots for the TV show BattleBots. Um, and so it, I never thought that there was going to be a, a confluence of of BattleBots and uh, and the clock project. But when I I saw the, the first design of this diamond chainsaw. I realized that that had finally happened. So maybe uh, tell me a little bit about that. Uh, wh- what is a diamond chainsaw robot? And describe it to me and maybe a few tidbits here and there about how you invented this um, this new technology. Well, it was it was really envisioned by um, this guy, uh, Stuart Kendall at Seattle Solstice, this rock cutting uh, place up in Seattle. Um, and we had worked with him on some other on an earlier prototype for the base that he he made for us. And in talking with him, um, he envisioned this this machine because he had he had spent his much of his life working um, and visiting places like Carrara, Italy, and the big rock cutting quarries where they use a lot of these technologies and very. Um, I mean, I'll say the word dumb, but I mean, as in not not um, a, a non-robotic fashion of just like cutting straight lines and cutting big slabs. And he he had seen he had built 
kind of more automated solutions for cutting rocks and in interesting shapes in his in his machine shop or his rock cutting shop. And so this was a, a way of kind of taking the, all of that experience and turning it into this machine that that solved a problem for us that was uh, really really difficult for us to solve in another way. Um, and it's you know, basically it looked like a big huge kind of two story tall cart that was suspended uh in a shaft and then underneath it it had this uh three three axis arm that wielded a nine foot diamond chainsaw blade and pumped a lot of water through it to keep it cool and remove the material and we cleaned and recycled all that water because we're in a place that had very little water um, and had to develop that whole system as well for this um and develop all the software that would run it and make sure that it was cutting correctly. It was it was nine feet into the wall when you were when it's cutting, so you can't actually see if it's doing the correct thing when you're even there. So um, we had to simulate all of its every single cut that it made before cutting. It's very difficult to uncut the rock, so we wanted to do that right. Um, so it was, it was all it was a it was a really interesting project to um, to figure out how to do correctly. I'm reminded of the axiom: measure twice, cut once. But I, I want to, so you said something so, well, many things so fascinating, but one of them that struck me is the robot, did you say is nine feet into the rock doing its thing? The blade itself is nine feet. So you can, you can plunge that almost you know, about seven feet at a given time into the rock. Yeah. And you have no way to see the robot doing its thing. No, you could only see um, up to the rock face. Um, so you, you know, we had to. We basically built a simulation environment um, and simulated all the cuts, and and had a, our programmer watched each one of the cuts first, and then then uploaded them in in small batches to the robot that was on site. And then the way it works is it only made horizontal cuts, um, and then and skipped about an inch and a half of rock, and then we would. Uh, break those plates out between uh, those inch and a half plates between the, um, the the blade cut, so we didn't have to cut every single surface. And it ended up with this really kind of cool surface at the end that's you know very smooth diamond cut rock with broken rock between um, on the walls. And and um, I think we came up ended up with this kind of interesting aesthetic itself. Uh, I mean, is this corny of me? But the way you just described the rock, it sounds beautiful. It is. I mean, the the rock that we're in is this. Um, this kind of lime white limestone um and and underground it's very nice to have light lighter colors than darker colors because it uh, it keeps things you know there's a shaft that goes all the way up to the surface and allows light in, and it kind of ends up being this kind of full moon quality of light um that allows the whole site to be you know, effectively illuminated for the parts around the clock um without any um without any electricity at least during daylight hours fantastic now, l let me ask you what it, I'm, I, I kind of think might be a stupid question, but I, I'd love to hear the answer anyway, which is why not just blast the way you would if you were building a new mine or something along those lines? Well, and to be fair, we used um, we used pretty much every underground excavation technology there is on this project um, and that started with blasting and certain parts of the site we did do with blasting some of the tunnels the access tunnels we wanted the areas around the clock itself to be to not be blasted for um for no, one the the main reason of that is that when you blast rock you there's also a thing called overbreak which it cracks the rock beyond where you exactly want it to um and this can be mitigated to a certain extent by getting really good blasters and drillers, which we did. But um, it's a really amazing team that's actually out of Napa that built wine caves um, that did all the kind of final blasting for us. That was the accurate blasting. Um, 
but that overbreak um, can cause long longer term issues where that that rock is less stable um, than if you were to cut it with something like a diamond uh, bit or or an, uh, an ablative bit the way we cut the main shaft um, which is a, a technology called raised bore um, where basically you you pull a giant drill bit in our case about 12 and a half diameter 12 and a half feet in diameter up through the rock after drilling a pilot hole down to put that bit on and that doesn't have this overbreaking uh, characteristic and makes for very stable rock around where the the crucial clock parts were so we're, that was that was key for us is to make sure that that rock was as stable as possible and i would imagine there's an aesthetic value as well yeah um yeah blasted rock tends to you know have a very jagged look to it and the you know rock cut with these uh drill bits and the diamond chainsaw and things like that um is it, it looks like a marble counter in a way so uh i think my wife carrie would would not be pleased with me if i didn't ask you at least a little bit about the diamonds <laughs> Maybe tell me a little bit about the diamonds. Uh, these are industrial diamond diamonds. It's you don't even see them. They're they're they're. It's basically it's like diamond dust that's trapped in a bronze like uh, matrix, and so it looks like these little bronze teeth, um, and it just abrades away at the rock. Um, and it actually, you tune that matrix that the diamonds are in to the the hardness of the rock that you're cutting, so that as the diamonds get dull they shed away and expose sharp, the sharper diamonds underneath. And so you wear through these, these bits or these uh, belts that, uh, that have the diamond matrix in them every you know, day or so. If you're, if the, every few days, if you're um, engineering the correctly to the rock that you're in, it took us a while to get that correct as well. Uh, Cause the rock varied um, at different depths um, to get the right blade technology for that. Hmm. And I would imagine, and if this is a stupid question, just tell me, but I would imagine sort of getting the diamond cut right mattered because you had to know how much was going to get worn down over time, right? You had to have enough diamond to do all the cutting you wanted to do. And I imagine there was some careful thought that went into that. Uh, well, th these, yeah, the diamond itself is not an expensive thing. These are industrial diamonds. I mean, you there's um that are you know diamond dust that's created through uh, industrial processes not things that you have to go find in the earth um like uh jewel diamonds so you can kind of you can create as much as you need for that and these the the belts themselves um would wear out and um and our main goal was to just not go through you know hundreds and hundreds of them but only tens of them as we finish the project but um, or maybe 800 of them i think maybe is probably about what we went through fascinating now, if we could maybe zoom out for a second, are you aware of anybody else on the planet currently uh, working on a product that is purpose-built to live 10,000 years or more? Oh, very much so. Pretty much every nuclear waste repository is, has 10,000 years as its minimum. Um, the ones in, um, in Europe um, are actually design life, working on design life of... Um, a hundred thousand years um and so we you know for instance we 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 use the fact that the yucca mountain project here in the united states for storing nuclear waste did a huge study a very expensive study to figure out what the longest uh, lasting concrete mixtures are on the planet and studied the roman concretes and things like that um and that's how you know so any of the places that we use concrete we use this formulation that they that they had um, learned about so we borrowed from that um and then you know there's 
there's things like the Svalbard Seed Vault, which certainly are designed to last for a thousand years. Even the Mormon Genealogical Vault has a design life. Their goal is around a thousand years. So there's, you know, there's certainly these um, projects out there, um, and some of the more monument-like projects. Um, I would argue, like um, the land art projects, like Rodan Crater by James Terrell or Michael Heiser's City, um, that's out in Nevada, um, and um, and other monument-like projects, um, even some of the big rock-cutting projects that range from Rushmore to to the Native American Crazy Horse Monument here in the United States, it's still underway. These are all things that are, you know, certainly um, have the chance of lasting on these time spans. In some cases, are explicitly trying to do so. And what about maybe I'm trying to think of somewhat uh, analogous-like experiences that I've had in the recent past that made me think long-term. And, you know, I think about New York and visiting the uh, 9-11 memorial, which is, at least for me, was restored my belief in humanity that people came together to do that. And then, of course, the vessel, which is outside. And so so um, if I, I don't know who created the vessel, but how, how many years is that designed to live for a monument like that that's designed to create an experience that makes you think? I don't know enough about the 9-11 monument to to know what their design criteria were. And I mean, the churn of a city like New York, um, I suspect it's going to be very unlikely that something lasts on that time span. But, you know, we have, you know, you look at Rome and there's 2000 year old stadium sitting right in the middle of a New York like city and it has survived in, in certain ways. And, and a lot of things around in Rome have survived on that time span, at least it kind of, in a kind of skeletal form that we can understand of what it's rough intent was. So it's, it's very possible that some of these things can last, um, but they certainly take more care by the city and not knocking them down and building other things. Um, and it's hard to know, you know, like the nine 11 monument, these are things that, um, that obviously man are very f- fresh in some of our minds that, um, at least the, those of us that were, that were conscious during that time. Um, but you know, in 20 generations is what's the nine 11 monument going to feel like, right. Um, and will the city value it? Um, and that's a, that's an interesting question. Uh, now, if I was a uh, product leader in a company, or a CTO type person responsible for innovation and delivering ultimately a meaningful um, product that required a significant amount of uh, engineering and multiple disciplines as we talked about. Um, And I came to you and I said, hey, Xander, uh, what do I need to know about managing a complex uh, product design, product ideation, product build, and then roll out that you have learned from this project that I could translate as a business leader? I mean, I think we've, we've touched on it a little bit, you know, things like um, don't try and compete with, you know, that's something for next quarter or you're, you don't try and compete with your competition for the things that they're building right now. Um, you need to be looking further ahead. And I think a lot of that also just becomes how you motivate your team. And I think people would much rather work on something that they think is going to matter over a long period of time and be, and is, you know, future oriented and is, um, is not responding to the things that are immediately around them. I think if you, if you find the right engineers and, and designers, um, they will be highly motivated to, 
to take a risk on a much more future oriented project than, you know, how do we get more clicks on this one thing right here, right now? Um, that's, I don't, I don't, I don't know a single engineer or designer that is, that, that finds those kind of questions very interesting. They do them, but they, they, that's not what inspires them. What inspires them is, um, is a leader giving them a really interesting and difficult project. And that's, that's what, you know, certainly our experience has been on this clock. Like I mentioned, we, we've had, you know, some of these really amazing engineers and material scientists and people like the, the guy who built the, the, the saw, um, it was kind of his last project um, hmm. that he really did and commercial project. Um, I mean, I don't know if it's commercial, but at least it was a, you know, a built. It project. had one customer. <laughs> um, yeah. One customer and one use. Um, but the, um, there's no other person I know in the world that could have done that project. Um, and really? We had, we had a lot of, what's, what's that like person's that. name? Uh, Stuart Kendall. Okay, yeah. and his co- his company out of out of Seattle called Seattle Solstice. And they, Seattle they still Solstice. Do, his 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 son in laws uh, now uh, doing a lot of the work there. So it's really they've done a really cool things. And I don't know there's I don't know any other way we could have solved some of those problems. And um, we have probably because of the people we had involved, we solved problems in certain ways. But I think that type of person never would have been never would have engaged this uh, a project if it was like, oh, how do we just make something that looks like something that's already been done or it was not a challenge? And so you end up with the best people by giving the best challenges. Hmm. And that would be, I think, my my main piece of advice is, is make the challenges good um, and um, and you'll get good people. I love it. Now, I, I've, I've read about this and, and so forth, but I'd love to hear from you um, sort of Jeff Bezos, his involvement what it's been like, et cetera. Um, well, I mean, I think the, the, the main thing that you can see is that when Jeff made Amazon public, he published a letter with it was called, it's all about the long term," And he laid out his long-term thinking strategy and he's been a long term and he's reattached that letter to every single quarterly statement that, you know, you have to, you have to be willing to be misunderstood for a long period of time for to do to truly valuable things. And, and so long-term thinking has been something that's been key to his thinking from the beginning, although it's very, he, it's very often not talked about when talking about his business strategies and things like that. And I think, um, you know, obviously when you become one of the wealthiest people in the world, people then start ascribing pretty much all the world's ills on you as well. And, um, and so it's an interesting position to be in, but I think, um, he's, committed to long-term thinking that's why he committed to this project and he's been absolutely amazing person to work with um and is himself a really interesting engineer and designer um and so it's been great and and remind me xander how much money he invested in the initiative um we don't know yet we're not done so um it's well the there's been random things reported but none of them are accurate and okay um, so it's not disclosed yes we we don't yet so, yeah, and I'm not sure if we will. I don't know if it matters. I mean, the point, you know, how much did the pyramids cost? Um, I'm not sure if that matters through time, but um, people do seem to want to know the answer to that question. It seemed like a natural one. Uh, it doesn't, it's actually not one that I care that much about. I'm, you know, a little curiosity, but who, not that much. The interesting thing I detected in your answer, though, it sounded like, you know, so, sometimes the unspoken speaks loudly, that he's committed to fund it, kind of period, that there isn't necessarily some budget you're managing to is that too personal a question um i mean we we make budgets all the time and we you know that basically it's that um the the goal is to do the project at the scale and the the way that that will make it the the right thing and um and he's 
he's heavily involved in the you know keeping track of all of that and and um and we certainly have engineered things you know found engineering solutions to things that would have cost too much um we we all felt um so trying to keep it in um in in the right types of solutions and um so yeah it's not a hard budget or a hard timeline the goal is to make the right thing but also to do it efficiently and not to do it you know if we took 100 years to build it it would not be an efficient way to do it um we have to keep the you know the design team and their you know focus on it and things like that but also not trying to rush it to the point where we we do things that are um that are compromises or too much of a compromise yes and maybe one more thing if i could Around here, we talk and write a lot about this idea of uh, creating different futures. And uh, my friend, the legendary uh, venture capitalist who our friend Karen knows quite well, Mike Maples, it's actually how I met her. He likes to say at a high level, there's two kinds of people, people who think the future will be more of the same, a continuation of the past, and people who want the future to be different. And so I'm somebody who uh, is attracted to people who are, are interested in the exponential uh, different as opposed to the incremental better. I realize there's a huge important role for the incremental better. I'm just not particularly interested in it. And, and most of our work is around this idea of how do we design, how do we create a different future? And so as somebody who cares about the ability to do that, um, what insight might you share with me about what you've learned about creating a different future? Well, I think, the the main question that's always worth asking in any endeavor is am i increasing optionality for the future or decreasing it and what i mean by that is you know if if i make a decision or i build a thing and and i'm successful in doing it did i make future generations or even the, my future self have greater optionality and choices and abilities or did I take some of those away? Like if you, you know, for instance, if you cut down an old growth redwood forest, you have decreased the optionality of future generations to experience that and make their own choices about how to manage that resource, right? And so you want, I think the the fundamental thing that the kind of long-term thinking axiom comes down to is this question of, do you really trust the future generations? Um, and do you want to increase their optionality or do you want to take their optionality away because we think we know better than them now? Which I think. Um, you know, we certainly wish that uh, past generations um, trusted us more and gave us more optionality in a lot of realms, certainly around resource management, things like that. Um, and the areas where they did give us those those that optionality of, let's say, you know, the water system of New York uh, City that was, you know, amazingly designed to to work for, you know, over 150 years of growth that was you know, unprecedented. Those were people that were trying to create optionality for that future, um, and the and those and those generations benefited hugely from it. Often they don't even realize it, um, but um, they did nonetheless. And you know, it's you, I've always wondered how, with all those tall buildings, that every single one of those rooms and bedrooms and conference rooms and offices and yada yada yada, there's a bathroom, and you go do your thing in there and hit the flush and. I don't know how that works. <laughs> I, I, that's yeah. that boggles it's, my mind. <laughs> and, and a lot of the the fundamental groundwork for it was laid over 150 years ago, um, and by truly visionary infrastructure builders that are largely unsung. But the, um, you know, I think you know you look at a lot of uh, the what we consider generally to be you know good legislation. They tend that you know you look at the 
the Bill of Rights, for instance, it's these, it's a few sentences per, um, per, you know, item. And so they're designed to be reinterpreted by future generations, every generation, um, every decade. And it's trusting that that future is going to know what's best for its own present rather than, you know, something like these 1200 page laws that are, that are put out into the world now that are really meant they're trying to interpret it so tightly that no future generation could ever interpret it in a different way than they are right now. And that's, I think, really poor, right? You want, you, 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 we know fundamentally so much less about our future's present. Um, and we, we're not, we're not good at predicting that. So what we should do is just make sure that our choices give them the most options and the most freedom to make their choices about their own present. Xander, is it wrong for one man to love another man? <laughs> That was fucking amazing. And uh, I deeply, deeply appreciate this time with you and, and of course, your work. Um, is there anything else you'd like to touch on? No, I mean, I guess I'll, you know, this is a podcast. I'll give a plug. We have a speaking series on long-term thinking ourselves, um, and uh, you can tune into that podcast. Um, and uh, if any of these topics are interesting to you, um, that may be a great place. We've had, you know, all kinds of authors and scientists and, and similar kind of people that you have on your thing, on your uh, podcast, um, but largely trying to cross over this idea of long-term thinking. So that might be a place where people want to touch in if, if they'd like. Awesome. And we'll make sure that your website, your social uh, and your podcast are, are all in the show notes. So anybody who wants to get to you easily will be able to do that. And um, any podcast about long-term thinking is a podcast I want to listen to. <laughs> nice. Well, it's been fun to, to do this conversation with you. Thank you, sir. And I would, uh, you're always welcome back. There's a ton of other things that uh, I would still love to talk to you about. Karen was right. Um, and uh, appreciate her very much. And you're always welcome back. All right. Thank you very much. Take care. Well, there he is, the legendary Xander Rose. How is that for a, uh, a mind-expanding thinking dialogue? And you can check out the Long Now Foundation at longnow.org. Also want to ask you to please share this episode. If you got some value out of that um, conversation with Xander, uh, if you're listening on Apple or Spotify or Stitcher or Flitcher or Ditcher or Richer or <laughs> whatever you're listening on, uh, most podcast players have a share button and you can press that button right now and send it to people that you love who you think would enjoy this conversation. And please know we deeply ap appreciate when you share these oddcasts on social media. Also want to let you know, we have some insanely legendary uh, episodes coming up. Uh, one of the top uh, venture capitalists in Silicon Valley, a guy who was in the seed round or the early round at Twitter and many others, the uh, co-founder of Floodgate Capital, Mike Maples Jr., is coming up soon. Also coming up soon, Pat Hyben. His new book with my brother from another mother, uh, Tim Rode, is out. It's called The Quitter's Manifesto. Quit a job you hate for the work you love. And it's a stunning book, and we have a very fun conversation Speaking of new books and great conversations, also coming up soon is David Novak. And he is the, he was the former founder, or I guess you're never former founder, are you? I guess you're just the founder, but the former CEO of Yum Brands. And Yum Brands, most people don't realize, is the largest restaurant company on the planet. They're the owners of KFC, Pizza Hut, Taco Bell, and more. And David's got a new book out. His book's called Take Charge of You, How Self-Coaching can transform your life and career. And listen, I think when we all have an opportunity to talk to one of the greatest, in this case, restaurant entrepreneurs of the modern era, 
That's an extraordinary thing. So you're going to love that episode. There's a lot more coming up. So make sure you hit subscribe or follow on your podcast player of choice so you don't miss any of it. All right. We would like to thank. Thank you. Thank you for investing part of your life with us. Thank you so much. Also, today's episode would not have happened were it not for the help of Karen Hibba. Karen, thank you so much. You're a light in my life. You're an incredible human being. And I deeply appreciate the introduction to Xander. My friends at OneLifeFullyLived.org are the nonprofit that helps you dream, plan, and live your best life. And One Life has a program for people at risk that takes people who are coming out of homelessness, coming out of jail, coming out of super challenging situations in life, and gives them a roadmap forward. Uh, Me and some friends here are bringing One Life to Santa Cruz, where we live, to make a difference for those kinds of folks. And if you want to do the same in your community, go to onelifefullylived.org. My friends at bottleneck.online are the world's first dedicated distant assistant. Check out bottleneck.online for an assistant who you'll love, who will never get anywhere near you. Uh, my friends at Otranet have been building legendary B2B websites in Silicon Valley for over 20 years. You need a legendary website, A-T-R-E dot N-E-T. All right, I need to remind you that today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes, and this oddcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network, and it contains content known to the state of California to cause radically different long-term thinking. All rights do remain perturbed. We are produced and edited by the greatest of all time, Jason DeFilippo. He's got a legendary new podcast studio in the Los Angeles area. Check out Jason.FYI. Uh, that's Jason.FYI. And Jason and I have some interesting news coming up soon, so stay tuned. Uh, Sarah Knox and Jamie Day do legendary technical execution, and they build Lockhead.com. Don't forget to go to Lockhead.com and subscribe to Category Pirates. Show notes by GM Simon. The Bobus Brothers, EX and RJ, do our web development, and Cedric Biros does our graphic and web design. Our law firm is Weed and Jack, and our accountants are three balance sheets to the wind. Remember to spread non-obvious thinking. If it's not different, it probably won't make a difference. Dolly Parton was right. Listen to Blue Rodeo. And thank you, Candy Dandy. She keeps all the trains running on time. Love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go to Scott O'Malonic, editor of Stink, I mean, Inc. magazine. Sorry, Scotty. We just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Thank you so much. Please stay safe, stay legendary, and until we're together again, follow your different.